to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've got another couple hours of going against the grain before we're out of here for the weekend. Uh, but, you know, it's another day where there's a lot more to talk about than we probably have time for. Just this morning, we had news uh, of a couple of big announcements from Republicans. They have laid out their complaints about politicization in the FBI and anti-conservative bias in a report that is supposed to serve as a guideline for investigations into the FBI and the DOJ if they win control of the House. So we'll talk about what is in that. I also think it's interesting, John, um, Axio says that this is a thousand page document detailing allegations of politicization of the FBI and the Justice Department under the Biden administration. So I was surprised the Biden administration. By that, yeah. 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 This is I mean, this has been a long term complaint for a lot of people, including yeah. me. But uh, no, it's not specific to the Biden administration. I, I think that that Jim Jordan put that in there just for for partisan gain for midterm effect, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, the other big announcement, of course, it's, uh, it's still in the realm of rumor, but being reported broadly is that Donald Trump's team is considering a November 14th announcement of his 2024 candidacy. So we may have an answer to the will he or won't he question before the month is out, before two weeks is out, um, which I kind of wonder, John, is this going to have an effect on the midterms? Like, do you think that possibly there are people who think well, you know, I, I, I like this Republican better for my state or I am worried about the economy and I just don't trust Democrats who were going to vote Republican, but don't actually want to deliver uh, the entire government to the party of Donald Trump. Do you think there will be any impact? I you know, that's a good question. And the, the honest answer is I'm not sure, although I do think that the Trump people think that they can get partisan advantage out of out of sort of leaking the information today mm -hmm. that he'll likely run in a week and a half. There was a wonderful quote. <laughs> there was a wonderful quote uh, today where a journalist in Sioux City, Sioux City, Iowa, asked Trump if he was going to run. And his response was just perfect. He said, the election was rigged and stolen. I ran twice. I won twice. Now, in order to make our country success, successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again. <laughs> very, very, very. Get ready. And that's all I'm going to tell you. Good. That's, yeah, man, I really don't want Donald Trump to come back. I really don't. Uh, but also, it is funny. It is funny when he's around. Um, we have a ton of economic news to get into. We have the ooh, warnings that the UK is headed for its longest recession ever, uh, which doesn't sound great. The U.S. Right. economy, on the other hand, continues to add jobs, although the unemployment rate is rising slightly. So I guess that is good news, bad news for the Fed. Um, we have an agreement, like an agreement in concept on a price cap for Russian oil uh, with European partners. Although, as far as I understand it, we don't have any kind of agreement on to what, you know, what is the figure of that cap. We've also got European partners issuing sanction, sanctions waivers left and right as they try to appear to comply with the U.S. supported sanctions on Russia uh, while actually maintaining their economies the best they can. We are going to get an update later in the show on what's going on in Syria, as there are fears or 
quote unquote fears. I don't know which it is that Russia will be too distracted by Ukraine to really maintain operations there in Syria. Uh, We're going to get a little more into the topic of the week in the United States, which is political violence. We're going to talk about what the midterm results might look like. Uh, There is a lot to get into. And that's without even mentioning truly one of the dumber Tom Friedman columns that I have encountered recently. Did you get to did you get to look at this, John? Yeah, I actually laughed out loud, Michelle, I, when I read this thing. You know, whoever told this this guy that that he's so smart that he should be telling us what to think for all these years, I, I just don't understand it. It's just absolute garbage from start to finish. Uh, the, uh, the This is in the New York Times, if you want to read it and understand the quality of analysis that the Times likes to have in its, uh, you know, a, opinion column. Uh, it starts off saying, the Israel we knew is gone. So the Israel we knew is gone because Israel has just reelected the guy they've been electing for 20 years. But now it's gone. And it starts off with this. The the first paragraph is funny because it starts off him saying, imagine you woke up after the 2024 presidential election and Donald Trump's been reelected and Rudy Giuliani is attorney general and Michael Flynn is defense secretary and Bannon is Commerce Secretary and the Proud Boys are in Homeland Security and Marjorie Taylor Greene's the White House spokeswoman. He's presenting this as though it's impossible. I mean, I don't think half of those things are impossible. You know, I'm totally sure, agree. you know, Enrique totally Tario at Homeland Security head is is silly. But you want to you want to tell me it's impossible that Donald Trump gets reelected and Rudy Giuliani's in as AG and Michael Flynn's as defense secretary. Psh, I don't. And, and everybody's been pardoned on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. So impossible. Think again. And that's how impossible it is that Rudy Giuliani or uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu has been reelected. The other thing I mean, this is just again, it's it's like. Uh, a layer cake of uh, idiocy. Um, but he also says, you know, the, the question now, do I support this Israel or not, is going to royal synagogues and other uh, organizations. And he says it will challenge Arab allies of Israel and the Abraham Accords who just wanted to trade with Israel and never signed up for defending a government there that is anti-Israeli Arab. John, sorry, was the, was the uh, government of Israel not anti-Israeli Arab last week? Did that change overnight? Right. This is this is ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. And that's why I say Friedman needs some sort of oversight. First of all, I don't think he should be writing for the Times or for anybody else because he's an idiot. Mm-hmm. But something like this, this just shows that he either just dashed it off without thinking about it, or he truly doesn't know anything about modern Middle Eastern history. Yeah. And the thing, it goes back to this sort of recurring theme of the last several years, honestly, when it comes to COVID-19, when it comes to the 2020 election, right, when it comes to uh, uh, political violence, you know, Joe Biden invoked this in his speech on Wednesday night, this idea of living in a shared reality. But again, you have The New York Times allowing someone to pen. This is simply not reality, right? That all these countries signed on to the Abraham Accords full of confidence that the government they were partnering with was not anti-Arab. Come on. Right. Right. Ridiculous. Yeah. And yet this is an idea that's allowed to be reinforced. So it's it's absurd. Um, I have another thing that I wanted to get into because this is something (laughs) that has been um, bothering me for a little while. Uh, It's it's COVID, guys. COVID's been bothering me. No, I mean, you know, I've been thinking over the last couple of days about something that it really is 
frightening and, and shameful about our COVID response. We are nearly three years into this pandemic, right? Into, into a new world in which COVID is a thing. And after three years, I still see seemingly sane people, people affiliated with the medical community, people, uh, you know, not not nut jobs, people who, you know, are, are living regular lives and who, uh, again, have some understanding of this issue, saying our governments are lying to us or deceiving us by a mission. They're pretending that it's now OK to get this disease that can cause long term disability, even in mild cases. It can wreck your vascular system. It's probably linked to all of these sudden deaths by by heart attack or aneurysm, because if you spend much time on social media, you will find these lists going around of uh, relatively young seemingly healthy people dying suddenly of natural but inexplicable causes. So on one hand, you have people saying COVID-19 has always been an extremely dangerous disease and it remains that way. Uh, then on the other side, you have people who are saying corporate forces are are working to uh, mislead the public into accepting COVID spread and unprecedented death and disability and our government, our press aren't stopping them. So that's that's one group. The other group, you have people saying, no, in fact, we've been lied to about vaccines. We were told that they were supposed to prevent infection and transmission, and they seem to be pretty bad at both. The goalposts have been shifted the whole time. Look at all the money big vaccine makers are making now on this jab that we're pressured to get, but which is ineffective and maybe harmful. And then, you know, you, you have in the middle of that our government going, la-di-da, you know, get your booster or don't get your booster, whatever. COVID's over. And I think a lot of people who want life to feel normal again and want to do the right thing for their communities and want to believe public health officials and are just going back to normal, who are mostly vaccinated, probably boosted, probably not boosted for a third time. And so you have these three camps of people. And I cannot, with total confidence, tell you which side is right. Right. Are we right to now be treating covid like the flu? Because that is what we are doing in this country. Right. We have no vaccine, you know, rolling back vaccine requirements for school and work. No mitigation measures, uh, you know, being imposed. Is that right? Or are we wrong for not recognizing how actually terrible this virus is, that it's secretly wrecking people's bodies and we're only going to see the effects in the medium term, but they're definitely coming? Or did we all just get conned into a billion dollars for a big pharma. And honestly, I'm not I don't know what the answer is. I'm just saying for sure I will say it is shameful that 3 years into this pandemic uh, there's not an answer to any of this. You like I don't have to endorse any position to be able to say we have had 3 years to research this to try to understand how exactly it spreads and what it does and what prevents it and what lessens its impact and also 3 years to create a communications apparatus to convey this information and our government and I think most Western governments have just absolutely collapsed with like abject failure. And so, you know, I think people are mostly just shrugging and saying, well, I hope it's OK because you have, you know, the uh, doomsayers on one hand saying um, basically COVID's going to infect all of us and it's going to be really bad and we're all going to be disabled. And doomsayers on the other hand saying, you know, uh, the, the vaccine is bad for you. The vaccine's mind control or whatever else. And we're all going to be in terrible shape because we were conned into getting this vaccine. And then everyone in the middle going, nope, nope, not a thing. And I just think it's outrageous that there isn't more clarity on on any of this, John. 
Man, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, when I was doing the show with Lee Stranahan, he has a decidedly right-wing uh, listenership. And um, Lee made it clear that at Sputnik, uh, we were mandated uh, with getting uh, the vaccine. I would have gotten the vaccine anyway, just because I'm a believer in that kind of thing. And I know a lot of my friends are not. But I said when I was doing Lee's show that my own personal position was – if you want the vaccine, get the vaccine. If you don't want it, don't get it. You should wear a mask because that's going to prevent you from maybe infecting somebody who is immunocompromised. But if you don't want it, don't get it. You know, I read a, a piece in the New York Times today that was just so interesting. It was about this woman who's running against um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as a Republican. And she she has as a core of her campaign the fact that she opposed – Literally everything, every mandate coming out of the government from the, the very first mandate at the beginning of, of COVID. And after she gave her whole spiel, she was taking questions from journalists. And one of them said, why is your voice always so raspy? And she said that she caught COVID, it became long COVID, and it attacked her vocal cords. And she's going to be like this forever. So, you know, is it worth it? We've got to make these choices for ourselves. I've chosen to get vaccinated, not just once or twice, but I've been vaccinated five times and I've never had COVID, knock on wood. I for mean, me, that was the right thing to do. But, you know, we can you can only make an informed decision on that. And and I say you personally, but also governments who have decided to make some vaccines mandatory. And, you know, because public health is a thing that needs to be maintained, is something that should be in the purview of government. You know, like you can't send your kid to school if they don't have a, a, a whole list of vaccines because we've decided we don't want those diseases in our communities. But you can only make those decisions if you have a clear understanding of the, uh, you know, significance of this disease. And again, I think it's yes. really weird that yes, there remain right. all of these questions. And again, not questions by like, uh, a Twitter user 2020 who has five fo followers, but like serious debates between uh, doctors and scientists and researchers. And I just think it's a, it's appalling. I don't know. It's it's upsetting. I just I happen to see I, don't know, I heard about a son, a, a friend's child who has covid for, I think, the third time and thinking again, what is this? Is this something to be really frightened? Should she be really worried about this? Should she be really skeptical about the vaccine? Should she just shrug her hands and go, I guess I'm the exception? Like, I just don't know. And I think it is terrible that we don't know. That's that's my, <laughs> my yeah, message that's, for today. That's rough. That's rough. Um. I will say I'm not I'm not one of these Fauci lovers, right? Yeah, I think no. the guy did as well as he could do. He's not a genius. He's not an all knowing, all seeing, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, being. Um, no. It's easy to say that the that the science changes or the understanding of the science changes, but boy, a lot of mistakes were made at CDC and elsewhere in the government. A lot of mistakes. They did, they've done a terrible job. I mean, and that's the main point here. Whatever the reality is, they have done an extremely bad job of uh, communicating it to people. Really, really bad. Uh, and it was an important job. And look where we are now. It's uh, it's garbage. I know we have our next guest. I wanted to point out one um, funny story that I, I saw today. It's from Yahoo News. It's from no Yahoo News. Right. Not not Yahoo opinion or analysis. And the headline is Marjorie Taylor Greene makes alarming promise about Ukraine if GOP wins Congress. And I just thought, right, 
I saw have, that. I have some questions about that headline. Like, is it is it objectively alarming that a congressperson would say what she said, which is that the U.S. Uh, no longer is going to fund the conflict if Republicans take control? Is that alarming? Or I don't know. It's just it's just completely commonplace <laughs> I think, honestly, now. To, I think, no, I think that's very simply a policy statement. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's alarming. And I also feel like uh, what she actually said, uh, her statement was the only border they care about is Ukraine, not America's southern border. Under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine. Our country comes first. They don't care about our border or our people. Listen, I dislike Marjorie Taylor Greene intensely, and I think her politics are bad and harmful. But I think there's also a very real possibility that Democrats are underestimating the power of that message. Right. That comes back to the America first message that carried Donald Trump over the finish line in 2016. Yep. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, producer Ben points out, it is probably more alarming that she said Paul Pelosi should have shot his attacker. I remember that she was saying if Paul Pelosi had a gun, uh, this wouldn't be a problem. Marjorie Taylor Greene, always good for uh, some head scratching. All right. I'll say at least she's too stupid to write legislation. So we have that going for us <laughs> for, for a while. Let's hope she doesn't get any tutoring. Let's take a break here on Political Misfits. We're going to come back and get into some domestic economic news in a second. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Companies from the rideshare industry to the mighty Amazon have begun shedding jobs or putting hiring plans on hold as the economy continues to slow thanks to rapid and significant interest rate hikes from the Fed. Corporate leaders are blaming stubborn inflation, energy shocks, higher interest rates, reduced investment budgets, and sparse startup funding. If the U.S. isn't already in a recession, this week's decision by the Fed to raise interest rates by yet another three quarters of a point, that's the fourth in a row, could very well push us into one. And in the meantime, Fed rate hikes have pushed home mortgages over 7%, which in turn has depressed the housing market. Many economists say that if we're not in a recession, we will be in one soon, so we have to be, be <laughs> we have to be watchful for it. Either way, none of the economic news is good for the Biden administration as we approach next week's midterm elections. We're joined by Jack Rasmus. Jack is an economist, radio show host, and author of the book The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Jack, it is always a treat to have you. Thanks for joining us. Always my pleasure. Jack, I want to start by asking you about unemployment, something that hasn't been a problem for a long time with the exception of that crazy period during the pandemic when pretty much everybody in America lost their jobs. Many companies have frozen hiring. Many have initiated layoffs. Inflation is still high. But at the same time, The economy added a strong 261,000 new jobs last month. We learned that today. Unemployment's only 3.7%. Do we now have to begin worrying about unemployment, or do you think this is overblown? Well, first of all, you've got to understand that that number that they keep throwing out there, the 261, is uh, what's called the U-3 unemployment uh, rate. Uh, And that only 
covers full-time employed workers. It doesn't cover part-time uh, temp-employed uh, workers here, which uh, in my estimate shows is at least 50 million in the country. So it's it's a, a real low-ball number, but, you know, it's a nice number they like to throw out there. Uh, and, um, you know, that's how you, you get such a low, below 4% un- unemployment rate. Uh, the 261,000. There's another survey. See, that comes from the survey called the Population Survey that does the unemployment. Uh, and But then the other figure you get a lot um, uh, is is uh, from the Establishment Survey, uh, known as larger corporations. Uh, the, the Population Survey picks up smaller businesses where a lot of the problems are in terms of jobs. Uh, but when they only report the the one survey, the larger corporations, you, you get a rosier picture. But even so, two hundred sixty-one thousand. Uh, you know, make a note that that's uh, about half of what it was in July. So there is a slowdown going in job creation. Uh, on top of that, though, there are, there are some problems, uh, uh, and that is you got to remember this two hundred sixty-one thousand is a statistic. It's not the actual number of uh, unemployed or employed or whatever you want to call it. Uh, It's a statistic. They take raw data, and then they do a statistical operation on the raw data, and they report out the 261 or, you know, any of these other numbers. Um, And and that is being, uh, I I think, biased uh, by a couple of things. One is seasonality adjustment. You know, the statistical manipulation called seasonality adjustment. We're in a holiday season, uh, so you get a this time of year a higher number than the average, all things equal. Uh, and there's also a problem, I think, of with a statistic called the new business development, net new business development. Uh, you see, every month in the U.S., there's hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, new new companies created. These are small proprietorships mostly, you know, but there are workers there. Uh, and uh, every month there's a uh, hundreds of thousands that uh, go under. And the net difference is called the net new business development. Uh, and that number is a raw number, uh, but it's lagged six to nine months. So six to nine months ago, you had the economy opening and you had a uh, a, a bigger gap between companies that were being formed and companies that were falling away, right? Uh, and they take that raw data six to nine months back in the past, and they add that raw data to the raw data report they get from big businesses, smaller business, the establishment survey. They take those two kinds of raw data, they put them together, and then they make assumptions about it and do a statistical manipulation on it. So, you know, this is some of the arcane stuff that goes on. But I, I think that uh, those methodologies uh, in a post-COVID world aren't working very well. And I think we're getting overestimations of how many jobs are being created and therefore how much uh, unemployment there is. Um, also, you've got to realize that coming out of the, uh, econ- the COVID this spring and summer, you had a pent-up demand. Uh, particularly for services. People were denying themselves, you know, purchasing services. And, uh, you know, that pent-up demand results in some hiring that isn't ordinary, that's uh, temporary here. You know, 
2022 or temporary. Uh, so, you know, if you take all those factors under consideration, uh, you know, it's, it's not as robust a hiring situation, I believe. And a lot of these also, I would say a lot of these jobs they're recording as, as new jobs, uh, are, are really part-time jobs. You see, the government doesn't make a distinction. A job is a job. And uh, when I looked at the data a couple of months ago in detail, I found that, uh, you know, they had hired, I think it was August, 800,000 part-time workers. I mean, that's a huge number. That's how you got that 523,000 number in the summer, because it was mostly part-timers. Uh, so, you know, those are the details below, below uh, you know, the surface here uh, that when you look at and dissect these numbers, uh, the job situation is not as great as they report. And I think uh, uh, Powell and the Fed know that. That's why they keep referring to uh, uh, job openings and job quits. They're looking at other data they're trying to find to get a better look at what's going on because the unemployment rate below 4% is nonsense. We know that. It, you know, no, no part-time temp gig workers are included in that number, 50 million of them, right? And then when you look at the, the job creation numbers, not the unemployment, you see these problems uh, that I've been talking about. Um, and we're beginning to see layoffs occur. Housing, of course, is, uh, you know, eight months of uh, contraction going on in housing and unemployment clearly rising in, in housing. Uh, the tech sector, a couple months ago, they were talking about freezes. Uh, now they're actually laying off, you know, meta. Amazon after the holidays for sure, uh, Twitter, uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple not yet. They're usually the last one. Um, and we see manufacturing beginning to really stagnate. Uh, and, you know, we're going we're gonna to start seeing uh, unemployment and layoffs there coming after the first of the year. Uh, unit labor costs uh, for companies are rising very sharply because productivity is collapsing. Uh, that raises the the cost per unit for businesses, and of course they're going to cut costs elsewhere, and that's going to be um, you know laying people off after the holidays. So uh, it's not as, as as rosy a picture <laughs> as they keep saying, in my opinion. I think the labor market is much weaker, uh, but you know if they keep using this um, distorted data, I think uh, it's going to look better than it actually is. Jack, what do you think of the Fed's policy of raising rates until inflation comes down, even if that means, apparently, even if that means crashing the economy? There's a human cost to these rate increases, after all. People have to work to feed their families. And if the labor market is softer than it looks, as you say, and I think you're right, what does that mean over the next year or so as more and more Americans lose their jobs? Well, the Fed doesn't care. I mean, the, the Fed uses the counter argument that, uh, uh, okay, you know, people are going to get laid off, they're going to lose their jobs, maybe that will reduce demand, uh, and that will reduce inflation, whereas inflation is really more supply-driven, and the Fed can't do a damn thing about that by layoffs and rate hikes. But anyway, that's what the Fed argues, and the Fed then says, uh, you know, it would be much worse for even more families if we let inflation go uh, you know, and, and do nothing about it. And we would then have to even raise rates even more down the road, which would be even worse. Therefore, you know, in the short term, uh, tough luck, uh, folks, if you get laid off, but uh, that's what we're going to do. And the Fed has decided 
on on a uh, recession. This is baked. I believe we're already in a recession uh, for reasons I explained, you know, on my show several times, my own radio show. Uh, a first half of the year, GDP contracted, and they said, "Oh well, you know, that's just a technical recession. We don't we don't you know count that." And then we had this very weak third quarter, uh, small bounce here, and now in the fourth quarter, it's definitely going going to contract even further. Uh, and all the talk is uh, in 2023. Oh, it's gonna. It may be deep. <laughs> it may be significant, and I think it's going to be significant. It's going to get much worse in 23, and uh, there's going to be a lot more layoffs. Fed's going to continue raising rates. There's no way. The Fed is not going to continue raising rates, and it may continue at 75 basis points again in December. Depends on the, the next job report in December and the CPI report in between. Um, no, it's not going to be a slowdown, I don't think, if those two reports come in weak once again, let's say too strong once again. Uh, but right. we'll never get inflation back down to 2% in the foreseeable future, in my opinion, because this is supply-side-driven inflation mostly still. Uh, this is uh, global supply chains that have improved a little, but there's still a problem. This is uh, Russian sanctions that have uh, driven up com uh, commodity speculation in oil and energy and industrial metals and in fertilizers and all that. Uh, the dollar has risen. All these commodities are traded in dollars. So if the dollar rises, the that alone, forget supply, uh, the price of all these commodities are going to rise as well, and energy is going to rise as well. And if you're a, a, a country outside the U.S., uh, as the dollar rises, your currency collapses and your import prices rise as a result. I mean, look what's happening to the currency in Europe and in Japan everywhere. Uh, they're in free fall. They're, they're, you know, they've more than 20%. Well, that raises uh, uh, their prices 20% almost, you know? And you can see that happen in Europe. You're, they're all in double-digit inflation now. In the UK, it's a basket case. Um, so their inflation problem is even worse than the U.S. because of the U.S. dollar, because of the global empire. In the U.S., dollar is the linchpin of the American empire. The Fed raises rates, dollar goes up, all the other currencies go down. I was going to ask Jack about this news from the UK today, from the Bank of England, uh, saying that the UK is likely to be in its longest recession in history. Interest rates are at their highest in 33 years. Unemployment's going to double by 2025. Inflation is at its highest in 40 years. Are the Brits looking at a 1980s Japan scenario, or is this just bad economic management? How do you think they get out of this? Uh, it's, it's both. You know, I've been predicting that uh, the U.K. is going to be no bigger uh, in this decade than Northern Italy's economy. <laughs> the U.K. is a basket case, uh, really, and it's being mismanaged. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, the U.K. and Europe and all the rest uh, are at the mercy of uh, the U.S. economic policies. Uh, we've forced them into these, these dumb sanctions that are driving up inflation everywhere, and they're going to freeze this winter. Uh, and then um, the Federal Reserve, as it keeps raising interest rates, as I said, uh, the dollar goes up, the pound goes down, and what do they have to do? They have to raise interest rates to protect their currency, the pound, because uh, the British uh, capitalists are saying, hey, 
know our wealth depreciated 25% because the pound collapsed. You better do something about this central bank. So the central bank raises their rates, and they will as long as the Fed keeps raising rates in order to protect their currency, prevent it from falling further. Uh, you know, all this stuff with Liz Trust that occurred was uh, Liz didn't get that message, <laughs> you know, that uh, the Bank of England was going to drive this policy with higher rates, and she wanted to stimulate the economy. Well, no, no, you don't stimulate the economy. You try to slow it down to protect uh, the value of, uh, you know, the bond market and all that stuff over there in Britain. So, yeah, um, I mean, when the Bank of England and, you know, its chair Bailey says, hey, look, it's going to be at least two more years in the worst recession we may have had since the Great Depression. It means that we've decided, you know, we and the capitalists behind us, uh, we are going to raise these rates as much as we need to in order to shake out inflation, protect our bond values. But, you know, if it's supply-side driven inflation, half of it at least is, there's not a damn thing the Fed or the Bank of England or any of them can do about supply-side inflation. They may shake out the demand side by creating a deep recession, but that won't shake out all of the inflation. I've been predicting what we've got, we're going to see next year is a significant recession, but we're not going to get prices down to 2%. I'm talking about the U.S. now. Uh, like uh, Fed Chair Powell says, he wants to get back to 2%. No, no, you're not going to get back to 2% as long as there's a supply-side problem, which is a sanctions problem, which is a supply chain problem, uh, which is a war in Ukraine problem, which is oil companies in the U.S. price gouging the hell out of us problem. Jack, can you explain to us these reports that we – uh, have seen today about the U.S. and the, the other G7 countries um, instituting a cap on the price of Russian oil. Uh, Yahoo Finance and Reuters are reporting that that each cargo of seaborne Russian oil will be subject to this price cap when sold to a buyer on land. There's so much about that that I don't understand. Like, for example, how is it up to the G7 to decide the price of Russian oil? And and who decides to implement something like this? I wrote an article a few weeks ago about uh, why price caps are, are nonsense. You know, uh, you can read it on my blog, jackrasmus.com. Look, uh, there's no way the G7 become a demand-side global oil cartel, uh, you know, setting the price of oil below the market price any more than OPEC couldn't really manipulate the supply side to control the price. Uh, the G7 uh, is, is crazy. Uh, they're not going to do it. It sounds good, though. Yeah. It sounds like, oh, we're going to do something. Well, maybe they can uh, boycott any oil not at the price cap that comes into Europe, uh, but the rest of the world is going to tell them to go to hell. Uh, they're going to continue buying Russian oil because Russian oil is already discounted uh, 30%. And it's a good deal. Uh, you know, and the big producers and even OPEC is going along with Russia. Uh, so, you know, the U.S. and the G7 are, are kind of like um, you know, imperial colonialists thinking that they can dictate this now to the rest of the world. Well, the U.S. does not have hegemony economically over the rest of the world that it had maybe decades ago. 
And this thing is a flop. There's no way except oil flowing into Europe, and there's not much of that, uh, that they're going to be able to set arbitrarily a price, a price cap below the global market price determined by supply and demand. Jack, um, give me a prediction for Tuesday and beyond. If the Republicans win both houses of Congress, what does that mean for economic policy? They, the Republicans, at least in the House, already have threatened to fight over the debt ceiling. What do you see happening in the next six months or so? I got one answer for that. One word, austerity. That's what you're going to see. Uh, because recession, continue rise in prices, the deficit's going to balloon. They're going to use that excuse because, you know, when you got a recession, you just do not have uh, the tax revenue coming in. The tax revenue keeps under the deficit. When that collapses, the deficit goes up dramatically. So if we have a deep recession, which we're going to have, uh, revenues are going to fall off. Deficit is going to worsen. And they're going to use that as an excuse to attack spending. Now, they're not going to attack defense spending. Uh, yeah, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they say they're, they're going to cut right. Ukraine war spending, you know, put a lid on it, maybe, which is already $100 billion a year. Uh, they're not going to cut the spending to prepare to go to war with China. So defense spending is going to continue up. Interest on the debt is going to go up. Revenue is going to go down. You're going to have a massive increase, a doubling probably, uh, in the deficit. They're going to use that as a hammer to go after social programs, including Social Security. Jack Rasmus, thank you so much for joining us. Jack is an economist, radio show host, and author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. You can find him at www.jackrasmus.com. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. To Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to talk a little bit now about political culture, political imagination, political violence, which is on everybody's minds and tongues lately, and, and how to envision a different future. We're joined for this by Jody Dean. She's a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith College. She teaches political feminist and media theory. She's also written and edited 13 books, including her latest, Organize, Fight, Win. Jody, thanks for being here. Oh, um, thanks so much for having me. I mean, I know you, you've also been involved in a, in a new book that aims to show uh, what the future of the United States could be. And I, I wanted to talk about, you know, uh, political imagination and how to expand it. Because I think something that the the duopoly in the U.S. has done very well is to contain the political imaginations of Americans, right? So we're sold from the moment of our birth that this is the best the world can be. And I think it's a really effective way to shut down motivation to organize. Americans don't travel very often and you just don't experience the 
reality that life could be different and in many ways it could be better. And and so I wonder, you know, how it is that Americans have become so blinkered and, uh, you know, what what you're trying to do to expand this political imagination. My um, late friend Mark Fisher talked about this phenomenon as capitalist realism, and it's the kind of terrible idea that it doesn't get any better than capitalism, that we can more easily imagine the end of the world than we can the end of capitalism. And of course, that mentality is what makes, you know, is what benefits the capitalist class. They benefit um, when people feel like there's no hope, when people think that this is as good as it gets. Um, this is a long-time uh, strategy of anti-communist, um, anti-communist who want us to all think that a better world is impossible, that um, planning won't work, that we can't have the what is it, the alignment that um, Democrats often use is like, why can't we have nice things? But all this is part of the legacy of anti-communism that really tries to make it off limits to think that, in fact, a better world is possible. So what our new book, Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States, does is combat this kind of negative brainwashing by saying, hey, wait a minute, we can imagine a better world. In fact, um, working people, oppressed people, um, you know, oppressed national minorities have imagined better worlds for millennia. And we shouldn't be bewitched by this kind of stupid capitalist mass media message that, oh, no, no, this is as good as it gets. So the book Socialist Reconstruction um, invites everyone to, enjoy, to join into a kind of collaborative, collective process of thinking like, no, actually, we can have a better world. We can imagine something better. And, you know, one of the names for this better world is socialism, that if we socialize the benefits of our work, we socialize our work, we socialize um, what we produce, then we can actually make something that will benefit people and the planet and not just a small cabal of capitalists. You know, I'm curious uh, also, uh, you know, talking about the, the word socialism, right? Uh, and, and this, you know, as you just said, uh, the possibilities for change through socializing uh, work and assets, etc. I feel like in the last, maybe in the last decade or so, a bunch of other, like a sort of lexicon of euphemisms for socialism have, have sprung up. Uh, and I, you know, I sort of understand why I understand why, because that term has been so poisoned in U.S. political discourse that people might want to try to avoid it. But it also seems like, you know, you've socialists and you have people who call themselves progressives and populists and left populists. And I wonder if you think that that, you know, that there's a limit to the utility of that and people should just, uh, you know, talk about what socialism is and, and, and be able to own it. What do you what do you think about the sort of myriad ways uh, people left of the Democratic Party describe themselves? And, uh, you know, would it, would it be more useful maybe to have fewer terms? Oh, I think that's such a great question, Michelle. And I would definitely be on the side of fewer terms. Um, I kind of have the sense that um, when people just, people, particularly people on the left, just say anti-capitalist, well, that's not enough. Like, like what do you, what would the better world look like mm-hmm. not capitalist? Like, what do you want what do you want society to look like? How are you going to provide medication for people who need it? Right? How are you going to um, 
to protect people from a mass pandemic? How are you going to organize um, work and the proceeds of labor? And just saying anti-capitalism isn't enough. Um, Progressive is also not enough. I mean, progress towards what? Like, Mm -hmm. might be progressive for some of us isn't going to be progressive for all of us. The one of the good things we can say about the uh, different Bernie Sanders campaigns and about the movement around Bernie Sanders was a willingness to um, own up to the term socialism and say, you know what, there are there have been amazing people in American history have been socialists. Um, the aspirations associated with socialism are important and worthwhile. So let's just let's just name that. I mean, our enemies are going to call us socialist and and communist anyway. Mm-hmm. They're going to call everything that's good socialist. Well, yeah, like we all like social security is it and Medicare, Medicaid. All of these are elements of or like sort of maybe like prefigurations of a better socialism. Mm-hmm. I also wonder, uh, you know, what what do you think? How should people support the sort of uh, better than nothing? politics or politicians in the meantime, right? For people who see the Democratic Party as consistently pretty dishonest and pretty disappointing, but preferable to Republicans in a lot of ways. You know, it feels like sometimes it's the the line is too fine to walk between recognizing where the the gaps are between, you know, what would be actual left policy and what Democrats propose. Uh, and, you know, on one side that on the other side going, well, everything is bad all the time. Why even bother being engaged? Uh, you know, how, what, do, what do you think is a sort of responsible way for working simultaneously toward better conditions and immediate conditions and better conditions in the future? Well, we really have to recognize that there is an all-out assault going on in this country right now against basic rights, um, against the environment, against rights that have long been um, held by, uh, you know, by women. I'm thinking of the um, abortion rights, and um, and so the just being kind of cynically, it's all bad, cynically dismissive, um, doesn't help anyone. That said. Reducing one's politics to, you know, the choice between competing oppressors every two or four years is also really inadequate. I think one of the ways that we can get um, around this is make sure that we think about our politics differently, right? Think about our politics in terms of mass organizing, in terms of meeting needs in our communities, in terms of getting, like, in terms of, like, local elections that can really make massive differences. So, um, there even under the even under the conditions that we have, things can always get worse. And the Republicans <laughs> prove that every time they're in office, they, things are always getting worse when they're in charge. So that doesn't seem to me that it's only you know holding our nose. It is kind of like you know if your if your house is flooding, you try to you know put up I don't know sandbags and plug the leaks and to try to stop those rather than just say well you know this house is is in shambles I'm going to move. Like first you got to do something before all your stuff is destroyed. Mm-hmm. And speaking about, you know, the the language of assault and assaults on our rights, I did want to talk about, um, you know, political violence because it is an increasing concern among Americans. And I, I think it's interesting that we live on one hand in a very violent society, but it's also one that people perceive as including very little political violence. And I, I wonder if you think that that's true, that we experience relatively little political violence. And, and if so, why so much violence is directed horizontally, so to speak, and not and not upward. Um, 
and and whether you would predict an uptick in political violence and the, the consequences for society. Yeah, um, I really appreciate this question. I think you know, you, you're, the way you've asked it lets us start to get a lot of insight into how much more complicated the question is than the debate that's being um, you know, sort of shoved down our throats by the mainstream media. When I hear political violence, I'm immediately thinking about you know, what's happened to our different revolutionary leaders and mm-hmm. what happened, what about, you know, Leonard Peltier or Asada Shakur, like what's happened, what happened to all sorts of leaders um, um, and black radicals and, you know, members of the Communist Party back in the 40s and 50s. Like, um, there has been political violence in this country that has targeted um, communist leaders, black leaders, working class leaders, Native American leaders, and that doesn't, pretty much invisible. Mm-hmm. I think that um, when we look at our everyday culture, like this, everything on television is completely crazily violent. And that does a kind of violence to our ability to think about the future, our ability to see ourselves as agents. And then what about environmental violence? The, the kind of environmental degradation that is experienced by um, working class communities and um, primarily black and brown communities, um, like that, the environmental degradation that they're um, subjected to is an incre- incredible kind of violence. And then the kind of violence of the police. I mean, it seems to me the violence of the police um, against working class people, primarily um, black people, that's got to be understood as political violence. That's a way of keeping people down. It's a way of keeping them from engaging as equal citizens in society. So I am. So I guess I, I, I have a strong sense that our understanding of what political violence is needs to be um, much more much more nuanced and much more akin to the realities of of American political life and not restricted to, you know, oh, God, the um, contemporary Republican Party has unleashed some of the worst, most reactionary forces in this country, and they're, you know, exercising um, in a fairly, you know, it's still a fairly small way, you know, attacks on, you know, on some leaders. Like, there's a whole other set of levels of violence that have to be part of this conversation. I mean, I also, you know, it might be sort of stretching the metaphor too far, but considering how few of our international conflicts are in reality based on any threat to our national security, you know, if you wanted to, you could you could suggest that this is also political violence. And I kind of wonder if, if you think Americans should understand our sort of extra state violence and our internal state violence as more connected than they really are, right? Because there is all this talk about this sort of canard about this is a weapon I used in Iraq. It has no place on our streets. And I wonder if you, uh, you know, link is a violent foreign policy to a, a violent domestic society. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking, you know, the, the United States um, support, I mean, is probably the most violent regime in the world and provides weapons and arms to the most violent regimes um, in the world. Um, And the situation in Palestine is but one example. We should also always keep in mind when we're talking about this that we're the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons. 
So our um, our kind of national profile of exporting violence, of addressing problems by using um, by use basically by military invasion, by drones, by sanctions, by you know by by um, by military force. Um, it's no surprise that a country that thinks that that's the way to handle conflict across the board is going to use that same um, way of dealing with conflict um, at home and. You know, this, when people say these, these lines like, oh, I've seen this, these weapons in Iraq, they shouldn't be used in, you know, in this country. Well, I mean, you know, so much of the weaponry that was used in the and manufactured for the Afghanistan and Iraq war became part of the regular apparatus for police departments, right? The police departments are putting these things on the streets of the United States. So, the, so the, it's... It's all kind of one process mm-hmm. of, of violence and militarism and imperialism and domestically and abroad. And and one thing, this our book, Socialist Reconstruction, addresses this and really wants us to recognize that you know there, there can't be um, any kind of peace at home or abroad unless these things are linked and connected. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask, you know, in trying to achieve a truly changed uh, government, society, political system, is there a sort of chicken and egg when it comes to domestic policy and international policy, right? Do Because it, it is sort of a hurdle sometimes. I've heard people say, like, you can't really you can't really achieve the changes you want to achieve internally if you don't address our sort of uh, neo-colonial violent foreign policy. Is this, is this a sort of step one, step two, and which one comes first or... Or, or do these have to be done simultaneously? Um, simultaneously, and I think that you know we're—I don't know. Sometimes I think from um, as as a woman who's had children and raised kids that you know you learn to juggle. We can do more than one thing at the same time. And um, some of us, if we think of a problem like climate change, for example, climate change is not something that can be addressed um, on a strictly local or strictly domestic level. It's an international issue, and which means that if the U.S. is going to do anything responsible to address um, climate change, we actually have to demilitarize. We have to dismantle the U.S. imperialist apparatus because the U.S. military alone is one of the leading um, emitters of of greenhouse gases in the world. Our military is one of the major causes of you know global warming right now. So it's not just a matter of kind of the the changing of the um the way energy is produced, which is major, but it's also a matter of looking at how does our very structure of the US empire actually contribute to planetary warming. And I guess I wonder which do you think is more activating, say, you know, saying uh, let's mobilize to uh, demilitarize or let's mobilize to prevent climate change? I think let's mobilize to save people and the planet. That lets us recognize that these are the same thing, demilitarizing and um, addressing climate change. We can't we can't think about them separately. That was author and political science professor Jody Dean. Jody, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Where should our listeners go to get Socialist Reconstruction, this new book that provides a a vision for the future of the United States or any of your other work? They can get Socialist Reconstruction at liberationstore.org. 
And um, they can find some of my books um, at the website of the of Verso Press, so verso.com, B-E-R-S-O-D-E-R-S-O.com, and then Liberation Store for Socialist Reconstruction, A Better Future for the United States. Jody, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to take a break in just a minute here on Political Misfits, but I did want to, you know, John... Every day this week, we've had to have an update on what the hell is happening at Twitter. And today is no different. The news today is uh, is layoffs, layoffs of about right. half the staff. I guess uh, they were supposed to be notified by 9 a.m. Pacific time whether their jobs were going to be affected or not. And it looks like people are already getting uh, locked out of Twitter systems. So a bunch of Twitter staff uh, being laid off and also seeing... Um, reports by lawyers out of California in particular saying it is possible that this is being done in violation of labor law, um, which would not be the first time Elon Musk uh, has been accused of of violating U.S. labor laws. I think that accusation has been tossed around with regard to uh, quite a lot of Tesla workplaces. Um, but yeah, it seems like the changes at Twitter have not stopped. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk more of I can't even remember all the news we're getting into in the next hour, but you're going to hear it in just a sec. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Fits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We're in the final days of campaigning before the midterm elections on Tuesday, and Democrats are scrambling to hold on to the seats they have in districts and states that Joe Biden carried easily in 2020. The president travels to New Mexico and California today to shore up struggling Democrats there. Hillary Clinton is stumping today for embattled New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Vice President Kamala Harris is in Illinois to boost Democrats there. Jill Biden is in Arizona to campaign for Senator Mark Kelly. Yesterday, she was in Rhode Island and New Hampshire. And even Oprah Winfrey endorsed the candidate in the bitter Pennsylvania Senate race, not her old pal Mehmet Oz, but Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Biden and former President Barack Obama will campaign with Fetterman on Saturday. But Democratic strategists say that there is little they can do to stem what looks more and more like a growing red wave. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is in Iowa, where he's campaigning not against the Democrats, but against Republicans whom he believes might challenge him for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Trump is expected to announce his candidacy shortly, probably on the 14th, uh, just after the midterm elections. In the coming days, he will campaign again for himself in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, and Arizona. When asked directly by journalists in Sioux City, Iowa, whether he was running, Trump said, and I'm going to repeat, quote, the election was rigged and stolen. I ran twice. I won twice. Now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I'll very, very, very probably do it again. Very, very, very. Get ready. That's all I'm telling you. It still makes me laugh. It still cracks me up. I thought it bore repeating. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for that. 
Well, we are happy to be joined by Ted Rawl. He is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is called The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks, John. I'm very, 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 very happy to be here. <laughs> so you're going to make me choke now. Ted, the electorate seems to have to have had a, a throw-the-bums-out mentality for quite some time now. Incumbents and other party darlings like Hillary Clinton were ousted in large numbers in 2016, 2018, and 2020, and it looks like it's going to happen again. It's unusual for an anti-incumbent mentality to last so long. How do you think we get out of this pattern? Can either party do it in the near term? Uh, well, I mean, could they? Sure. I mean, as a student of politics and history, I know that these trends go back a long, long time, uh, you know, arguably uh, since the foundation of the republic. And uh, But I also sort of, as a student of politics, marvel at all the missed opportunities and all the political malpractice that both parties, but usually the Democrats, are, are guilty of. Uh, you know, I think about... Uh, for example, in this current cycle, you know, Biden has been so incommunicative with uh, the American people since he became president. Uh, Biden and the Democrats should be uh, doing, I would say, a press conference every single day, uh, to, ever since they come in, to let them to let us know what they're up to, what they're you know that they understand. Uh, what the problems are and what we care about and what we're concerned about. You know, obviously, uh, I'm not going to list all the issues. We know what they are. Uh, and then and then say, listen, uh, about crime, we're going to do th we're, this is what we're working on. You know, about inflation, this is what we're doing. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, about Ukraine, this is what we're doing, whatever. Uh, and they, instead, there's just, you know, we don't hear from these people. And I think it's a tremendous mistake. I'm 59 years old. I remember Richard Nixon communicated with the American people so often that you couldn't be sure that your favorite show wasn't going to be preempted by a presidential address. Uh, and every president has pretty much uh, spoken less than his predecessor. I don't get it. We live in, a, in an age of hyper-communication. People are sending out Instagram photos of what they had for lunch. Uh, you know, the president of the United States is a politician. He should be availing himself of these tools to tell us that he understands our pain and that he's doing something about it. You know, there was a, a funny thing uh, in The New York Times today. There, there were several different articles about, oh, my God, the Democrats are really blowing it. And there was a theme through each of these articles where, you know, they're talking about Nancy Pelosi and they're talking about Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. And and they're all saying, wow, we're really going to get creamed. Somebody ought to do something about it. It's like, well, you're the people that should be doing something about it. You know, you knew this was coming six months ago, eight months ago, and you didn't prepare for it. So now no, you didn't prepare at all. Yeah, no, they didn't. They didn't prepare at all. Political scientists now are um, telling us that Democrats election strategy has missed the mark. And they're putting numbers to this. 42% of Democratic ads have been about abortion. 48% have been about the economy. And the rest have been about extremism. The Republican ads, though, have been far more honed. They're about inflation and crime, period. Do you think the Democrats erred by focusing on abortion? And what about Social Security? You know, I'm old enough, like you, you're 59, I'm 58. I'm old enough to remember how the, the slogan, Save Social Security, Vote Democrat, won the 1982 elections for the Democrats. 
Who's responsible for this kind of miscalculation and why wasn't it corrected? Well, I do think that abortion is an important uh, issue, not for swing voters, but for shoring up the Democratic base and getting them to the polls. Uh, but it's probably been overestimated in, because I think what's going on, uh, and I've, I've, given a, a, I've sort of gone back and forth on this issue over the last few months, uh, but I think what's happening is that it's not really a personal issue in the states where there's a lot of Democrats who are really agitated about this. Uh, you know, if you're in New York where I live, you really care about this issue, but it's not existential. You don't know anyone in your state who's not going to be able to get an abortion because it's still legal here and it's going to remain legal here, even if uh, the you know the new governor uh, becomes a Republican, which oddly is now a possibility. Um, so that is a uh, I do think that was okay, um, but the main I think the main problem has been trying to run against the past. Uh, they're running against Donald Trump. They're running against January 6th. And American uh, elections are just never about the past. They're about the immediate future. You know, we, I, we have this problem. What can you do about it to make it go away? On abortion, Democrats don't have a credible message about what they could do to codify abortion, uh, Roe v. Wade, because there's not going to have a 60-vote supermajority in the Senate. They're not going to vote to get rid of the filibuster. And even worse, Barack Obama did have a 60-vote supermajority. He did promise to codify Roe v. Wade. Then he broke his promise in 2009, 2010, when he had the chance and said it just wasn't a legislative priority. He thought it was going to get in, way, in the way of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I understand why he made that decision, but Democrats are paying for that now. Agreed. Donald Trump... Um these are today's numbers, has an 81% approval rating among Republicans. But among all Americans combined, that falls to 42%, which is the same as Joe Biden's approval rating. And a majority of 56% of Americans think Trump should be prosecuted for his actions on January 6th. Although he's not quite as popular among Republicans as he was two years ago, no other Republican even approaches his numbers if he were to run again. And Today, we learned that he'll probably announce his candidacy on November 14th. So my question to you is, what happens if he's indicted? He'll call it a political witch hunt, of course. But do you think Americans at large will agree? I think you have to remember there's two 42 percents here. Uh, you know, I mean, Biden's 42 percent is shallow. Trump's 42 percent is deep and enthusiastic and fanatic. You don't see Biden flags uh, in front of people's houses. Uh, people weren't uh, running around with Biden 2024 uh, bumper stickers last year the way they are they were with Trump stickers. Um, Trump will absolutely be able to turn the lemonade the the, lem the lemons of a indictment into into sweet electoral lemonade by pointing himself out. Uh, and, and the thing is, he's not going to have to face the music because these courts are nothing but a giant delay machine. I mean, his army of attorneys is going to file one request for continuance after another. Uh, you know, this campaign begins for real. The first primaries are really at the in one year. You know, I mean, in an, at the end of 2023, you're going to run into the Iowa caucus and, uh, you know, early 2024. And that's we're off to the races. The campaign really begins in late, uh, you know, after Labor Day, twenty twenty three. So, all he's got to do 
is, uh, you know, is basically hang tight, stay out of court until then, don't suffer any major losses, and he'll be cool. His strategy is completely a base strategy. He, he's just energized the Republican base who adore him and love him. He's never more effective or more popular than he's when he's perceived as being besieged and fighting back. This is all good for him. I have to agree, Ted. There's also been a political development that has gone largely unnoticed. I actually hadn't heard about this until today. Uh, the New York Times had a very uh, uh, in-depth piece about what's going on in Wisconsin. The Republican Party in Wisconsin is on the verge of electing a supermajority in both houses of the state legislature that would make the Democratic governor, if he wins re-election, and that's a big if, utterly irrelevant. Democrats attribute this to gerrymandering. There are three legislative districts in northern Wisconsin along the shore of Lake Superior that have voted for Democrats in every race since 1976. It looks like that's going to end because Republicans carved the districts up and spread out the voters. I think we should expect to see more of this kind of partisan gerrymandering. And the courts so far, at least in the last two or three years, have been 50-50 on gerrymandering. They've struck it down in some cases. They've let it stand in other cases. So what do you think about the future of gerrymandering? And whatever happened to those nonpartisan boards that were supposed to redraw districts like they did in California? Yeah, those, I don't know what happened to those nonpartisan boards. Uh, they, they seem to uh, you know, be as absent as Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's uh, charisma in this cycle. But in terms of the gerrymandering, uh, gerrymandering is only going to accelerate uh, because it's so effective. Republicans have been at this uh, for the last 20, 30 years, ever since they determined that if they didn't, they were going to become a minority party, even with the benefit of the Electoral College that really helps them. Uh, they uh, And now with sophisticated computer algorithms, you can slice and dice population centers into uh, perfect uh, Republican-friendly uh, or Democratic-friendly uh, districts uh, you know, all over the place. Um, so you're going to get some very strange-looking districts uh, for a time. The one that I live now live, live in now is one of them. It was a, a thin strip of western Manhattan, basically running all the way down to uh, New York Harbor and then jumping across New York Harbor to parts of Brooklyn. I mean, sorry, that's just that district doesn't have anything to, in common yeah. with itself. It looks like right? Chile. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right, exactly. And Chile makes sense when you look at the shape of, of, Latin Amer of, of South America. Um, so, yeah, it's very strange. Um, I think it's just going to continue. I don't know why Democrats don't do this as well. Um, they have had the opportunity to. You know, it seems like they're just all they want to do is, is whine about it. They don't want to fight back in kind. Last week, we asked you what was going on in the New York governor's race. Z uh, Lee Zeldin was gaining quickly on Kathy Hochul. Hochul appears to be now in real trouble, and the latest polls actually show her behind Zeldin. I think this is the year's sleeper race, and I can see Zeldin becoming New York's first Republican governor in 20 years. What's your take on this race? I agree with that analysis. I think uh, if I had, I mean, please don't make me 
bet money on this. But if I did, I'm going to say Zeldin, which is unbelievable. Uh, and it's not just that he's a Republican. I mean, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that uh, there was a Republican governor of New York 20 years ago. His name was George Pataki. And by today's standards, he would be a Democrat. Um, he was a, a moderate uh, you know, a centrist Republican, a real Republican at the, by the standards of the time. Um, but Zeldin is a true believer. He's a zealot. Uh, he's a right winger. Um, and he is, uh, you know, he, he got the seat that was formerly held by uh, Peter King, um, also kind of a fanatic from Long Island. Uh, this is absolutely would be an earth shattering development. I think it would be the top story. Uh, even bigger than Georgia, uh, if if he if Zeldin pulls this off, um, it I attribute it mainly to Hochul's weakness. Um, you know, the, the big problem for New Yorkers is the state of New York City, and Hochul's not from or of New York City, and doesn't seem to get New York City. Uh, she's from Buffalo, which is a good solid nine ten hour drive away, and uh, she just doesn't seem to connect with the the post-pandemic crime and chaos that we're suffering here. Ted, I think John is... Oh, John, are you back? Did it again. Yep. Did it again. House Republicans today, Ted, released a 1,000-page roadmap for investigations into the FBI and the Justice Department. These accusations are about politicization, but specifically under the Biden administration. This report which was released by Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee, led by Jim Jordan of Ohio, who I can't stand, was probably, at least in my view, was meant to stir up the Republican base just before the election. What do you think this means for Joe Biden? Is this something that the White House can ignore, like Republicans ignored the January 6th committee? Or is this going to be a problem for the White House? The Republicans have been crystal clear that if and when they win the House, these investigations are going to begin immediately, and they're probably going to dog Joe Biden for the the rest of this term. Yeah, I don't think it's going to matter at all in the midterms. I, I was wondering why the Republicans released it today, right before the weekend. Uh, it seems like a little they waited a little bit too close to the election. Uh, it's a big report. It's going to take time for people like us to read it and absorb it. Uh, and, you know, the <laughs> most journalists don't really work over the weekend. So I don't think it's going to move the needle on Tuesday. But for sure, these investigations are going to be a big deal. Um, I'm first I'm the most excited about the Hunter Biden laptop. Can't wait to see that one um, because there's real stuff there. You know, um, that is a real story uh, that is and it has not really been. Uh, allowed to be told. I mean, literally, uh, you know, social media didn't even allow, uh, you know, reputable news organizations to have their stories uh, reproduced uh, or disseminated. So I think um, this this is going to uh, make Joe Biden really, if he has not already decided, it's going to make him decide not to run for re-election. Uh, the, the next two years are just going to be uh, investigations, gridlock, uh, budget crises. Uh, it's it's going to be very, very bleak. Uh, Biden's presidency is over effectively on Tuesday. Uh, I have to agree. Like you, I consider myself to be a lefty. And, um, and I have to agree that it's been, you know, the left that has, that has blocked this information from reaching the public. Uh, it, it, 
is apparent that crimes have been committed by Hunter Biden and maybe by Joe Biden. And it's like nobody's allowed to investigate. So I, I have to agree. I, I'm not saying I would throw my lot in with the Republicans because, of course, they're they're just as biased as the Democrats are. But, you know, the truth has to be out there. And if um, if the president's son was involved in some kind of an international fraud and may have dragged his father into it, well, the country deserves to know. And, you know, this is what, again, makes that speech that Joe Biden gave on Wednesday so really inexplicable because underpinning all of these exhortations to uh, to defend democracy is this idea that, uh, you know, in order to do that or part of doing that is admitting that we all live we live in a shared reality, that the reality is reality and we we must share it. And that means bringing the election deniers uh, you know, the result deniers over to the shared reality of Democrats. But of course, again, we all it is pretty clear to see the way this party also attempts to manipulate reality. And you just think, like, who is telling them that this is a winning message for anyone who isn't already on board? You know, it really does. It, it does make you wonder truly if they want to win or if anyone who is consulting on this midterm messaging, uh, you know, talks to real people ever or, you know, what size is this bubble you live in? Because it seems pretty small if you think that that is an appealing message and that there are no sort of uh, chinks in the in the armor of the the particularly democratic reality. Well, I think the two party system also makes this message look incredibly self-serving, right? Because Voter suppression, if Democrats are complaining about Republican efforts to suppress Democratic votes, I mean, what are they effectively saying? They're not saying, we're fighting for you, the citizens' rights to vote as you please. We're saying, we're fighting for your right to vote for us. Mm -hmm. Now, that wouldn't be true in a, in a multi-party system, uh, but we don't live in that. And I think that's a big reason why the message, which, you know, it has some validity to it, is falling on deaf ears. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, before I ask you an unrelated question, I, I want to wrap up uh, politics with... Um, with this, do you expect any? Do you expect any political results on Tuesday that we have not seen coming for the last couple of months? This this Hochul Zeldin race uh, is is really surprising, but the Republicans are confident they're going to take the Senate. The numbers that I'm looking at make me think that it's a true real toss up. We're probably not going to know by Wednesday morning who controls the Senate. But are there any races out there that we're not really looking at that you think uh, are going to end up being important? Well, I mean, I, I do think I, I, this is shocking to me, too. I think Oz, again, uh, I'd give Oz the edge in Pennsylvania over Fetterman. I mean, you know, that's, it's not surprising in a way that that he's prevailed given Fetterman's, uh, you know, <laughs> terrible de debate performance following his stroke. Um, but uh, I, I think, I, you know, the, I'm looking really at some of the gubernatorial races, too. I mean, like, I'm still right. kind of blown away by, um, you know, how many state houses the Democrats have lost in the last 20 years. And that trend just seems to be continuing and they don't seem to care about it. And it's what's kind of shocking is how there's been some very viable Democratic candidates 
for for governor's races that are just getting killed, like Dan Whalen, the mayor of my hometown of Dayton in Ohio. I mean, she's extremely impressive, but she's she's polling at like thirty seven or thirty five percent right now. Um, you know, it's I'm also really interested in some of the uh, local. Uh, in ballot initiatives, like in New York City, about in in terms of what they say about the mood of the country, uh, there's sort of what I would call like a woke a pair of woke referenda here in New York City, where they want to add to the city charter an equity provision, saying that equity, the achievement of equity in very very vague terms, um, is needs to govern all New York City policy, and that would go with the appointment of an equity czar. Um, you know, I'm interested in seeing if there's any kind of like white backlash to wokeism uh, that sort of manifests in a city that's very angry and annoyed about crime. So I'm looking at stuff like that. Ted, I wanted to ask you a question about anti-Semitism. This has been in the news a lot Ted, anti-Semitism, do you support it? Yes. That's right. Yes. Let's just cut right to the chase. (laughs) Kanye West has taken it on the chin over the past couple of weeks for his anti-Semitic rants. It's cost him hundreds of millions of dollars, apparently. Uh, Brooklyn Nets basketball star Kyrie Irving has been suspended for anti-Semitic remarks. He initially refused to apologize. He finally apologized on uh, Instagram last night, and the FBI yesterday warned that they had intelligence about a possible attack against synagogues in New Jersey this weekend. The Anti-Defamation League says that there were 525 incidents of harassment, vandalism, and assault at synagogues and Jewish schools around America last year. That's an increase of 61% over the previous year. Why do you think this is happening? And are you seeing something similar in New York City? Uh, I'm not seeing something similar in New York City, but I will say uh, that I think, look, anti-Semitism is uh, deservedly so a fringe ideology. Um, and, uh, and, a fr- and, and what's happening, I think, is that the Internet amplifies these any kind of fringe cultural or ideological impulse and makes it louder so that we're more able to know that it's happening. Uh, you know, uh, if uh, if there's vandalism of a Jewish cemetery in uh, Kansas City, we're going to know that on national news in a way that we wouldn't have 30 years ago. So it's good we're keeping track of the numbers. But it, I my instinct here is it's, it's the reports that are going up uh, more than it is the actual, uh, you know, sympathy for uh, hating Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that, right. I think that this is probably also related to, I mean, I think we are also kind of probably at the beginning of something like a, a new satanic panic, right? We've had QAnon simmering for a while. Oh, sure. We are having these sort of accusations of who's grooming who at, at schools and what's the purpose and a lot you know, way more references to Satan and Satanism than I think uh, anyone should be comfortable with. And I think that uh, it, there's some way in which anti-Semitism and some of these um, ideas almost, it, it, they exist as part of that ecosystem. You know what I mean? And so that tide is rising and it's carrying with it sort of these these boats that are linked that have, you know, obviously are in some ways personal and are in other ways just related to, again, I think, yeah, the the amplifying ability of the internet, the 
anger that people are feeling at this sort of reality that neither political party can adequately explain to them uh, the just increasing, well, the, the our healthcare system, which is more and more costly, less and less accessible, and certainly um, less accessible if you want anything but, you know, bones set and penicillin, right? If you want and mental health care, you are SOL. And so I think I think that these things are are related, right? So I think if you are looking at, you know, looking at an increase in uh, anti-Semitic blather, Look for all of those other parallel things. I don't think this is happening on its own. Well, I think, you know, I'm glad you brought up the the mental health thing, too, right? I mean, look, uh, it makes me a little uncomfortable to see the very, very serious editorials issued by the editorial board of The Washington Post uh, going after Kanye West uh, over his anti-Semitic remarks. I mean, he's crazy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he, when New Yorkers know that when a crazy person is ranting in the street, that they are to be just, you just walk away from them. You don't, no eye contact, don't engage. And, and, but you don't, you know, editorialize on what they're saying because it's nonsensical. I mean, I feel really sorry. Really, I, I feel sorry for Mr. West. And um, I, I really wish that he would get the help that he needs. And I mean that sincerely. And, uh, you know, it, it's just almost like, uh, to see sort of, you know, very serious people trying to engage him as if he was like an actual ideologue like, you know, Hermann Goebbels, like Joseph Goebbels is just ridiculous. Right. Yeah. And I think there's you have to say, like, of course, there are anti-Semites who are sane. Right. And you are bad and you are dangerous. But this it is exactly. it is also true that anti-Semitism seems to be just sort of like a puzzle piece in someone's uh, process of going nuts. Uh, and so you have to be able to kind of uh, look at those two things and decide which is which. And unfortunately, in the case of Kanye West, he's got such a huge platform uh, and is so visible that, you know, even if he's going down the this doesn't feel particularly political, this is just a, a narcissist who's going off the rails. Uh, he, he can make a huge splash about it. And then, of course, that can be used by uh, whoever for whatever political point that they wish to make. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, it just seems a little facile. And, you know, I mean, at the, at the heart of all of these issues, really, uh, you know, uh, talking about crime and, and so on, mental illness. I mean, there's no mental health parity, even though it's my understanding that the ACA was supposed to guarantee that. But in reality, you know, nobody's insurance is covering it. Uh, and it's almost impossible, like you said, Michelle, to get for people who need help, even assuming that they have the mental wherewithal to go out and seek it, seek it out uh, to get it uh, or at least to get it paid for. Yeah. 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 That's right. Well, thank you, Ted Rolf, for joining us. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's the co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back. Stay tuned. To Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. 
I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. We've got a couple of headlines. We've got some news of the weird, and we are hoping to get to a little um, update on what exactly is going on in Syria and whether that is really a a blueprint we can look at uh, to try to predict where Ukraine goes uh, over the next few years. Uh, But to start off with, hey, John, um, it looks like Elon Musk is indeed being sued over the layoffs that started today. Yeah, he's been very heavy handed with this whole thing. Mm-hmm. It, and he's done this before. He did this at, at Tesla. He did it also at SpaceX, where he'll just walk through the the you know the assembly line and just fire people. And you, you can't do that. And especially in the state of California, you have to have cause. Yeah. So this is going to wrap things up for a little while. Yeah, I guess the issue here is that according to California law, well, this is the U.S. Workers Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act. So maybe it's beyond Calif- oh, it's California Warn Act and there's a National Warn Act that you have to provide uh, advance notice of mass layoffs or plant closing. And certainly laying off uh, half of Twitter staff, I think, would be considered a mass layoff. So we will have to see how that goes. Also, John... I don't know how I missed this. Uh, Do you remember us talking about just how many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck? I remember that conversation a couple of weeks ago, and it was a lot, but I don't remember the number. It's 63 percent. Oh, good Lord. I don't remember. I don't remember having this conversation. This is as of September. 63 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, The high was 64 percent in March. And this includes a bunch of people who are making six figure salaries. Right. Which I think, you know, might reflect some consumption choices on their part, but also reflects just how expensive it is to live in a lot of American cities. Like it, it's an outrage. I, I agree with you. This is <laughs> this is no way to run a country. Really? I mean, you can't have a majority of your population uh, $500 away from a disaster. No. And yet that $500, according to the Federal Reserve, is is too much money. And what we really need to do is get Americans uh, savings down. So they'll stop stop spending so darn much on just trying to enjoy life a little bit. Anyway, uh, I've been wanting to get a, an update on the state of the conflict in Syria uh, for there now and the, the state of life there for people outside conflict zones. And if you look, there is actually news about Syria every day that really ought to make people question this idea that the United States wants peace, wants self-determination for everybody, that NATO is a unified force for peace and stability. You know, all of these assumptions that our foreign policy rests upon um, are really overturned if you bother to take any kind of look at the conflict in Syria, which, you know, I think people are quite understandably loath to do because it is very complicated. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and do it once in a while. And so we're going to do that now here with Richard Medhurst. He's an independent journalist. He covers U.S. politics, the Middle East and international affairs. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. I I want to start with what is going on uh, in particular between Turkey and Syria, because I think all summer there was conversation about how Turkey was going to be launching a new offensive in northern Syria, but it didn't really seem to pan out. And then we got a few stories a month or so ago that Turkish officials and Syrian government officials were engaged in secret talks. And now 
the scuttlebutt seems to be about how Turkey is reorganizing the groups that form the Syrian National Army, which, of course, despite the name, does not answer to the Syrian government, uh, but is mostly a crew of, uh, I guess, Turkish proxies, Islamist groups and and mercenaries. Um, There's also a lot of question of just how closely the Syrian National Army is working with al Qaeda affiliates. Um, There was a a lead from an article in the Jerusalem Post, which uh, gave a sense, I think, of, of how nasty that conflict has been and remains. Uh, But it tells us to start the story that a former Kurdish area of Syria that was ethnically cleansed in 2018 by Turkish-backed Syrian rebel groups is now partly in the hands of an even more extreme group called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. They're, of course, a a former al-Qaeda franchise. So, I mean, I feel like that just sort of exemplifies how, how one, complicated, and two, terrible, uh, the situation there is. So so what's going on? Are, are Turkey and Syria talking? What is this reorganization of the Syrian National Army? What are Turkey's plans in northern Syria? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because first and foremost, Turkey's a NATO uh, member state, right? So like, we should always keep that in mind. Um, because the 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 role that Turkey's played in Syria during the last 10 years, um, you know, they've basically allowed humanitarian corridors to be used uh, for weapons and uh, foreign fighters to come into Syria through the, from their border. Uh, they've, they've allowed smuggled oil. So basically you'd have various groups. Um, uh, right now the oil fields in Syria are occupied by the United States, mm. but at other times they're occupied by ISIS and so on. And and Turkey would buy the oil or allow the oil to be sold. You know, they turn a blind eye basically. And Turkey is still occupying um, most of Idlib, uh, Idlib province. And, you know, it's funny because every time the, the United States comes out and says we killed some leader of ISIS, right? You remember Trump, he, he, um, uh, he was uh, uh, boasting about how he killed um, – uh, Baghdadi in a tunnel, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's running like a coward or something. And then they killed another, the, the, so his successor, the next leader of ISIS. Um, and where were these guys killed? Uh, both times they were killed where Turkey, where, where NATO was present. Yeah. So in Idlib, right? So, and, and, and the, the Turkish narrative is that they, they, they don't, um, align themselves with Al Qaeda. They have nothing to do with these groups. And it, it just doesn't add up when you look at the facts, because in Idlib, it's so, it's become so, um, you know, influenced by Turkey. They're not even using Syrian pounds there anymore. They use uh, Turkish lira. Mm. Um, you know, the, uh, there are Turkish troops inside of Syria in this area, and we we know that that Idlib is being run by the group you just mentioned, uh, HTS, which is, you know, it's Al Qaeda uh, morphing into Al Nusra and then morphing into HTS mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think it was PBS who did this interview with with Jolani. You know, mm-hmm. like they put him in a suit and try to make him look good. And you know, uh, I don't I don't know what Turkey's play here is because other countries that also tried to get rid of the Syrian government, um, like Turkey, uh, uh, including Saudi Arabia, are also kind of you know they're thawing out relations with Syria, but it's not full fledged. So, for example, the the Jordanian king. Uh, you know, he hadn't spoken to the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad in like 10 years, and then they they picked up the phone and had a chat a few months ago, mm-hmm. and borders been reopened, and uh, there are flights now, and and you know, it's it's I I think it's more of um, these uh, 
U.S. Gulf allies um, kind of just accepting that, okay, well, this this whole project didn't really work. Uh, we've been trying to get rid of the guy for 10 years. He's not really going anywhere, mm-hmm. especially after Russia, Iran, Hezbollah uh, came into the mix and, and made sure of that. So, you know, right now it's just, I think, it, it's really interesting seeing hints of it, at least, hints of Turkey kind of, I don't know, guess I, just swallowing the fact that, that Assad is not going anywhere. But... Um, that that plan you mentioned, where they wanted to go into Syria and take, they wanted to extend the 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 occupation zone by 30 kilometers deep. I mean, that kind of shows you again how, uh, wh- when it comes to, you know, territorial integrity and sovereignty and borders, it doesn't apply in Syria. It's fine for Turkey, which is a NATO country, to to take Syrian land. It's fine for the U.S. to occupy Syrian oil. It's fine for Israel to bomb Syria every week, um, and and everyone turns a blind eye to that and they don't say anything about it in the media. And all they want to talk about is Ukraine. And in Ukraine, they care about international law all of a sudden. Right. So I find it very, very funny. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think to some degree, people are sort of waiting for a, a resolution in Syria. And I think what we start to have to accept is that I guess this is the resolution, right, where uh, m- I guess most of the country by a a not huge margin uh, goes back under the control of the government of Bashar al-Assad. Syria does not formally annex northern uh, or sorry, Turkey doesn't formally annex northern Syria, but basically controls it. The U.S. continues to uh, squat. Uh, near these oil fields under the guise of uh, fighting ISIS and, and quote unquote, protecting the oil. And that's just how it remains. Nobody needs a solid board. You know what I mean? And and so it just seems like over the last uh, almost 12 years now, we've just, uh, you know, Im- impoverished this country, immiserated its people. And uh, now we're going to leave this conflict sort of relatively frozen. And I, I wonder... You know, if, if this is just sort of this, what the state of play is going to be uh, for, say, the next decade. And then also, you know, is is this what the future of Ukraine looks like? I, I, I really don't know what's what's going to happen, but I, I would certainly agree. It's been kind of a, in a in a stalemate since 2019. You know, nothing's really changed uh, uh, dramatically in terms of uh, territory being regained and so on. You know, Syria is trying to rebuild, but they they are making that very difficult. Um, you know, Trump, he put these Caesar sa- sanctions on Syria and then Biden just left them there because they're the same. Um, and uh, it, it's really, you know, they, they once again, they, they pretend that it affects the leadership, that it targets the political leadership. It's, it's quite the opposite, actually. In name, it targets the president and his son and, and, and you know, um, the, 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 the top brass. But in reality, it, it just targets average civilians. I mean, you know, having bread lines or, or having to wait like a day or two just to fill up your 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 tank. That how how does that punish the the government? It punishes normal people, and so that's kind of been the policy, right? It's like let's let's um we we can't win militarily, so we'll try uh, economic warfare and and try to choke Syria that way. And the crisis in Lebanon also, of course, affects Syria because their economies are so interlinked. Um, and you know, it's it's uh. It's really bad, you know. I I really think people um, have had the wool pull over, pull, you know, pulled over their eyes because they think that sanctions are some kind of soft alternative to war. It's quite the opposite, actually. It's worse, I would say, um, in many ways, and uh, it really, really just punishes average people. And it's just ma- meant to kind of make sure that Syria, uh, 
can rebuild. It, that, that's really what it is. So I, I certainly hope that changes because Syria joined the Belt and Road Initiative. So, mm. you know, it used to be part of the original Silk Road. Uh, you know, Palmyra was, was actually a very important stop on the Silk Road in ancient times. So it's it's kind of... Um, it's kind of uh, uh, nice to, to, to see uh, to see it join the new Silk Road and and you know there's there's a lot of development to be done if only the sanctions were to be lifted, but of course you know with Iran and Russia and China you have a, a new multipolar world emerging where they don't care about the sanctions they just don't care and they're going to interact with Syria as they do with Cuba and one another and uh, that's that's ultimately going to be good for Syria. Do you think that? Um, is there will be changes in Syria because of the conflict in Ukraine? Because uh, I have seen some reporting uh, asking, you know, if, if Russia is distracted by Ukraine and has less time or energy or appetite for operations in Syria, then um, Iran is going to fill that void. Uh, I don't know if you think that is what would happen, but I also wonder if that is, you know, is that actually going to run counter to U.S. desires or would it, you know, give the U.S. more opportunity to engage with Iran and accuse Iran of interference, interference in the region, right, by the United States, which is extremely far away from the region? Um, I, I wonder, one, if you think if you think there's going to be a difference in, in Russia's um, operations in Syria because of Ukraine and whether that is going to uh, you know, present an opportunity for the United States or not there. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny you mentioned this this um, uh, influence uh, line because, you know, they, they say that um, uh, both Russia and Iran have like they have growing influence in Iraq and Syria and the Middle East and so on. And if that's true and if it's really a bad thing, I mean, who's to blame for that? You know, it's 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 uh, it's NATO that attacked these countries and, you know, created these conditions. So, um, you, you know, you reap what you sow. But um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a. Um, uh, uh, going to change anything in Syria. The irony here is that Russia has, has a naval base, uh, which I don't know, was created in the early 70s. It's very old. And it's in uh, Tartus, which is on the Mediterranean coast. And that base was kind of falling apart when the war started. And because of the war, um, as, as we know, which is, you know, led by the West and their Gulf allies in Turkey, it, 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 it kind of made sure that Russia upgraded this base and, and now it's state of the art. And, and, you know, if you're worried about Russian presence in Syria, well, Guess what? You just shot yourself in the foot because now you've made sure that there's a bigger Russian presence in Syria and a bigger Iranian presence in Syria, right? If those are really bad things, like they claim. Um, I, I don't know if, if the Ukraine war is going to change much. I don't think so. I think everyone's too distracted with that. But obviously, you know, it goes without saying that the Ukraine war has um, a lot of impact on every country, you know, Syria included. It's just uh, um, the the ramifications and the ripple effect from the war are so big. Um, it's it's frankly unbelievable. You know, I I um I think that Turkey really wants to um, uh you know milk this uh, Swedish Finnish uh, uh, application to NATO for as much as they can. So we saw them demanding that they lift the arms embargo, which happened, and they want these uh, PKKs, so Kurdish Worker Party. Uh, um, uh, members to be extradited from Sweden and, and Finland to Turkey. And I don't know if they're going to try and get any concessions from the West in, in Syria, but um, in terms of Russia, I, I don't see anything changing there. You know, Russia um, has air superiority and uh, they, the their presence has been upgraded at the naval base and nothing's really changed. Um, the only thing I would say is that Iran, which uh, helped Syria a lot in the war, you know, their drones are now being used in Ukraine. So, 
if if you know they weren't used that much in Syria, but if anything, the the war in Syria I would say kind of um, allowed Iran, uh, Russia, and Hezbollah to test their capabilities and prove themselves, and now that's really uh, come to fruition for them in in Ukraine. Um, you know, Iran is no joke. They've they've really excelled in nanotechnology, defense, and that's even under sanctions. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's funny seeing in, in the West how they, they say at the same time that Russian, um, that Iranian drones suck, but then they also <laughs> so devastating. Yeah. Like, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. I wonder what you think. I, it just occurred to me that, you know, in all of these discussions about energy and what are countries to do if they divorce themselves from, from um, Russian energy? Not a lot of discussion of the oil that Syria has or the role that it could play in, uh, you know, bridging any kind of gap in energy supply. And I wonder if you could talk to us. Military.com, U.S. military outlet, did a story recently about the um, Al-Tamp base, U.S. base in Syria, uh, which, you know, it's it sort of sheds a few tears because uh, it says, you know, the U.S. lets Israel fly over its airspace to strike what are consistently termed Iranian proxies in Syria. But then that leaves the base open to these retaliatory attacks. Um, the base is, if you look at a map of Syria that shows you supposedly who's in control of what, this base is right in the middle of either ISIS-controlled territory or rebel-controlled territory, which just goes to show you, you know, the sort of fluidity of that uh, narrative. But I, I wanted to ask, you know, what you think people should know about uh, the U.S. presence in Syria with regard to Syria's oil, and then also, you know, uh, what role Syria could play in, you know, uh, helping, you know, helping actually provide energy to the world. Well. Um... Syria, basically, it, you know, if you look at Syria globally, it's not one of the top oil producers, but internally inside of Syria, um, if you look at the uh, IMF numbers from 2010, the I, I think it was, yeah, it's 25. So basically a quarter of the um, government's revenue was from oil. So you can understand how substantial that is in terms of, uh, um, you know, infrastructure and spending, how vital it is uh, as a lifeline to the government, to to the people. And that's been taken away, right? Um not just by the U.S., but the the other groups who are on it, and 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 now, of course, it's the U.S. occupying these oil fields, and they're they're not just you know quote unquote protecting them like Trump said, they're they're stealing them like it's mm -hmm. it's it's in daylight. They there are convoys all the time uh, passing through this border crossing uh, with Iraq, uh, El Walid border crossing. It's it's they don't even bother hiding it. I think that's one of the first things that Biden did in Syria, he just kept them going right, yeah. and um, it, so so it's not it's not just it's not that Syria, uh, Syria's oil is is uh, lacking on the global market. It's just that all this this lucrative government revenue is now lacking in Syria, and this is another way they choke the the country, right? So they cut off any lifelines possible with sanctions by stealing the oil, etc. And and of course, you know, even, there are many many reports of Turkey looting. Uh, a Syrian industry, like they would just come in and, and you know, <laughs> go into factories and just um, uh, unpack machines and, and, and uh, you know, um, take literally strip down machines and take them uh, back into Turkey. So there, there are many ways that NATO has, has really crippled the Syrian economy. And, um, it, it, you know, just globally, I wanted to say something in relation to Turkey and, and, and Russia. You know, Russia, I think, would like to see Turkey's position strengthened uh, because it allows them to sell their gas um, through Turkey. And, you know, 
Turkey is one of the only countries that like uh, when I say only, I mean, in terms of the West and NATO that hasn't sanctioned uh, Russia, um, you know, even though Turkey's. Uh, a NATO country, they, they are one of the few who, who decided not to put sanctions on Russia. The mere payment system was expanded there. So, you know, um, there there are many things, uh, many paradoxes here, because while Turkey is, is obviously a, a NATO member, it still refuses to tow, um, tow the U.S. line 100 percent. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of cooperation develops between Russia and Turkey, and uh, specifically in terms of uh, um uh, gas and energy, because mm-hmm. uh, you know, Turkey Turkey has some vital pipelines and wants to seem prestigious and so on. And uh, I, I'm not going to go into the whole uh, Armenia Azerbaijan uh, uh, conflict, but that that's also related to to uh, gas. Um, you know, so I mean, I I, I just uh, uh, I just end by saying that. You know, while, while Syria's oil is not vital to um, or doesn't account for a large portion of, of uh, global oil supplies, it, it's still vital inside of Syria. And that's why they're stealing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'll be it'll it'll be interesting to see how long like how, how far Syria can go with engagement with Russia before uh, NATO, you know, attempts to curtail it. And really what NATO could possibly do, considering they they need Turkey. Um, but I don't think we have time to answer that question right now. Richard Medhurst, it was great to talk to you. Where should our listeners though go if they want to find more of your work? Uh, they can uh, find my work on uh, youtube.com slash Richard Medhurst. Great. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, John, I know we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I know you've got a lot of news of the weird, so why don't you lay it on me? Yeah, we've got some news of the weird, which is which is kind of fun. And none of it's terribly outrageous, but we'll oh, begin with sports. We'll forget it then. <laughs> we'll begin with sports and the 2022 American Cornhole League World Championships, Heck yeah. which, which were held in August. I thought cornhole was just something that people from Ohio played, you know, during cookouts. What do I know? It turns out that the winning duo of the of the national cornhole world champion or whatever it is, um, which was carried by ESPN, believe it or not, uh, cheated. Mm-hmm. They're calling it Baggate. Uh, on ESPN, it says that after one side asked that their opponent's bags be measured, they were determined to be too small. Ooh. But the accuser's bags were also measured, and they also were too small. Double nobody's admitting, <laughs> Yeah. Nobody's admitting to anything, but it appears that the bags were boiled so that they would shrink huh. because they weighed what they were supposed to weigh. It turns out that this American Cornhole Association, which, believe it or not, has 220,000 members, said that the sport is going to have to have referees now like every other sport because you can't trust anybody not to cheat. That's a little sad. Gosh. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's a bummer. Just use use regulation bags, guys. (laughs) Man. It seems simple, doesn't it? Yeah, that's sad. Michelle, this next story is one that you and I laughed about in the— in, in the office last week. Mm-hmm. It's about a guy by the name of Amu Haji, 94 years old, from a village called Dezga, Iran. He was known as the world's dirtiest man. He refused to bathe for more than 60 years because he was afraid that bathing would make him sick. What happened was 60 years ago, his dad took a bath, and after he finished his bath, he had a heart attack and died. 
So this guy, Amuhaji, said, oh, well, it was the bath that made him die. So I'm never going to take a bath ever again. So for the first time in the last 60 years, villagers talked him into taking a bath. Mm -hmm. They took him to a bathroom to wash. Uh, and then as soon as, <laughs> as soon as he finished his bath, he had a heart attack oh, and he died. No, that's terrible. That's terrible. That's so this, sad. I this mean, poor guy had no family, but the villagers had built him a cinder block, one room cinder block dwelling for shelter. They would bring him food every day and, uh, and they all chipped in to buy a grave and they buried him in the cemetery outside of the village. And no one in the village is ever going to take a bath ever again. <laughs> now we're going to have the world's dirtiest village. This is how it begins. Wow. That's aw. I He did have a long, long life. So, you know. He did. He I did. hope he enjoyed his bath. Old. Yeah. God bless. I, I hope I can make it to 94. I doubt it. But yeah. Yeah. He had a nice long life. The next one is from the state of Maine. It says Maine is walking back a 2015 decision to eliminate its review process for vanity license plates. Sorry, it decided it wasn't going to review vanity license plates? So you could just what say whatever that? in Maine? Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> Man, it sounds great. They said that as soon as they made this decision, I love this quote, the resulting vulgarities... <laughs> yeah. made Maine like the wild, wild west yep. with about 400 offensive plates being subject to recall. And here's a, a, a quote uh, from, from the woman who's in charge. Her name is Shenna Bello. She says, what I would say to those who want to engage in objectionable or questionable speech is get a bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way they're able to do this now is because the license plates are technically state property. You don't own your license plates. So what they've done is they've enacted a new uh, regulation um, saying that people have to return the vanity plates if ordered to do so by the government. I just think and it's... Those so go ahead. So there's no review process. So someone says, I want my, I just want my license plate to like be the F word. And it's the paperwork gets stamped by whoever is whoever's job is to do that. It goes to the place where they're made, where what I mean, maybe this is all done by robots now. And this is why no one thinks about it. But so like then they set up the 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 press to press the letters into whatever vile vulgarity that you want to have printed in the bumper stick. The bumper is or the license plate is made and then sent to you. And then you have to send it. It's just, it goes such a long way. It goes such a long way down the, you know, oh, yeah. to production. It's just incredible to me that no one at any point along that process, uh, despite that oversight uh, rule being, uh, you know, despite the oversight being rolled back in 2015, no one at any point went, do you think, no. do you think really we're going to have a car driving around that just says like the B word or something in Maine? I mean... It's well, great. It's great. Our, our intrepid producer, Ben, has forwarded to me an article that's entitled, Here are this week's bumper crop of awesome main vanity license plates. Uh, I like the and top is kind of clever. Is it 420 are, is already a winner. And that, yeah. 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 And, you know, this reminded me when I when I first read this this little clip, it reminded me of that episode of Seinfeld where 
where Kramer got a license plate that said Ass Man. Mm -hmm. And um, it turned out it was missent to him. It was a proctologist who had ordered the Ass Man license plate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are 25 different variations of Ass Man. You know, instead of S's, there are five. There's more variations than that, John. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, I will tell you in my in my neighborhood where I where I grew up there I did see a license plate that said six pack which I thought was funny. Uh but there was also some insufferable person who decided he needed his car to say wealthy doctor. W oh, was like W L T H D R and I just thought boy Man, uh, including the, I forget what kind of car it was on, but uh, pretty grim. I think that's all we got time for today, John. Yeah, unfortunately, we're out of time. We're going to head out of here. Uh, thanks, of course, to everybody who joined us. Thanks to everybody who makes the show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We're going to be off on Monday next week. So we'll see you all on Tuesday. Goodbye. <laughs>